So our course is over these coming weeks, and again, I've published the calendar in the bulletin, and we'll flock note it and do it again, and so on and so forth. I'm going to talk about the meaning of suffering. Of course, it's a, one of the biggest topics. Whenever people talk about why they leave faith or don't believe in God, suffering is one of the biggest reasons, all right? Various questions like, how could a good God allow suffering in the world, and so forth. So we'll address these and many other points. What I'm going to be using as the central guidepost for these lectures is a document written by St. John Paul II titled Salvifici Doloris, or Salvific Suffering, or On the Christian Meaning of Human Suffering. He wrote it in 1984, published on February the 11th, the Feast of Our Lady of Lourdes, because as you may or may not know, February 11th, the Feast Day of Our Lady of Lourdes, is also the World Day for the Sick, and so he used that occasion to publish. We'll follow the general methodology. I will uh, talk for about a half an hour, and then give time for questions as they may come. Pardon me, I forgot to set one of these things. Well, nuts to that. My phone is not working well. Now again, the first of these, if you've paid attention to the titles, the first one is called The World of Suffering. We are not in the first class going to examine the question, why is there suffering? We're going to do what is a good philosophical and theological first move, is examine the thing as it is, right? recognize what it is we're talking about before we start talking about why and what to do. So at the end of this, he didn't say why is there so... Quite right, right? And in fact, you notice the next chapter, the next session is the why, all right? So we're going to begin with our scriptural themes, as we often do. My first thing is going to come from the Gospel of St. John, Chapter 18, so this is our Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. All this Jesus said, and now with his disciples he went across the Cedron Valley, and there was a garden into which he and his disciples went. Judas, his betrayer, knew the place well. Jesus and his disciples had often foregathered in it. There then Judas came, accompanied by the guard and officers, sent by the chief priests and Pharisees with lanterns, torches, and weapons. So Jesus, knowing well what was to befall him, went out to meet them. Who is it, he asked, you are looking for? Jesus of Nazareth, they answered. And he told them, I am Jesus of Nazareth. And there was Judas, his betrayer, standing in their company. When he said to them, I am Jesus of Nazareth, They all shrank back and fell to the ground. So once more Jesus asked them, Who is it you are looking for? And when they said, Jesus of Nazareth, he answered, I have told you already that I am Jesus. If I am the man you are looking for, let these others go free. Thus he would make good the words he had spoken unto them. I have not lost any of those whom you have entrusted to me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it, struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. Malchus was the name of that servant. Whereupon Jesus said to Peter, Put thy sword back into its sheath. Am I not to drink the cup which the Father himself has appointed for me? So, of course, from there he enters into the Passion. And we bring that up to recognize the world of Suffering, things that are foreknown. Suffering is in part the destiny of humanity because of the afflictions of others. The betrayer, right? We're getting into the distinction now between physical and moral suffering. I'll talk more about that later in the lecture, right? But the betrayer, that is a mo- what we call a moral suffering in psychological, emotional pain of the soul, betrayal. And then authority, the scribes and the priests that are supposed to uphold righteousness, now are doing unrighteousness and come out with swords and clubs as against an evildoer. 
and then the temptation is to flee it and to rebel against it, right? Peter cuts off, no, put your sword into his scabbard. When we're starting to get the realization that the first thing to do is understand the world of suffering. Shall I not drink the cup which the Father himself has appointed for me? Again, all your why questions, hold on to for right now. We'll talk about that next week. But it's first to say, what's the first thing we do? Face the world of suffering. It is there. Of course, he will endure all the physical suffering, which I don't need to read all those passages. We know it well. The second scripture, Paul's letter to the Colossians, chapter 1, verse 24, one of the more famous passages, Colossians 1, 24. Even as I write, I am glad of my sufferings on your behalf, as in this mortal frame of mine, I help to pay off the debt which the afflictions of Christ still leave to be paid for the sake of his body, the church. I am glad of my suffering. Why am I glad of my suffering? On your behalf. Because in this mortal frame, I help to pay off the debt with the afflictions of Christ still leave to be paid for the sake of his body, the church. All right? this, is the, this is the salvifici doleris, all right? the salvific sufferings, that there is this world of suffering before us. We all know it. Right? Some of us know it more acutely than others, but we all know it. And that's the first thing to be faced. The first quotation from John Paul II that I wish to use. In Christ, every person becomes a way for the church. It can be said that man in a special fashion becomes a way for the church when suffering enters his life. This is playing off that path. Right, because the world of suffering is not just, it is nebulously out there, but it's also when we confront it, when it enters into our life, when either we embrace it or it embraces us. Right? Even though in its subjective dimension, all right, just the word, subjective, right, you are a subject, right? So subject is a, an individual person. So even in its subjective dimension as a personal fact contained within the man's concrete and unrepeatable interior, suffering seems almost inexpressible and not transferable. Perhaps at the same time, nothing else requires as much as does suffering in its objective reality to be dealt with, meditated upon, and conceived as an explicit problem. So let's unpack that a little bit. Subjective, when you experience suffering, it is your own. When someone else experiences suffering, it is their own. And in many instances, it cannot be transferable. And yet, when that happens, it creates the objective question out there, what does all of this mean? Does that make sense? So subjective suffering, which is not transferable, requires, okay, to be meditated upon and conceived as an explicit problem. Because we have this subjective experience that goes to this objective reality, it has to be meditated on because in a weird way it's relatable but not transferable. Let me give you an example. I've had three funeral masses of infant children who died, right? Between, between a, one year and two years old. Which, if you've ever... But it's an unbelievable sadness. Right? Now, every time when they was there, there was the mother and father of the child 
And then all the peoples in the church obviously packed. Well, what would you invariably see? I saw the mother of the child looking as serene and beautiful and peaceful as I have ever seen her, and all the other women completely unable to handle themselves emotionally. Why? Well, for two reasons. The actual suffering was in that woman, right? That mother that was particular to her and is not transferable. What were all of those other women thinking of? Their own children dying. Part of the mystery is God is giving her a grace to deal with it. We'll get into that later, right? Not giving them a grace to deal with it because their child, in fact, is not dead. Right? But they're sort of emotion, they're trying to emotionally transplant themselves. So John Paul, that's just an example, a very demonstrable example that I have experienced, an anecdote, if you will, to understand this is what it means when we have to meditate upon these kinds of things. Suffering is something which is still wider than sickness, more complex, and at the same time, still more deeply rooted in humanity itself, right? We understand that. Suffering is something which is still wider than sickness, right? Of course, sickness, injury, etc. is suffering. Obviously it is. You get up, the flu, you suffer. You break your arm, you suffer, etc. But we all know that suffering is wider than that and more deeply rooted in humanity itself. What does he mean? A certain idea of this problem comes to us from the distinction between physical suffering and moral suffering. This distinction is based upon the double dimension of the human being and indicates the bodily and spiritual element as the immediate or direct subject of suffering. Who suffers? The person, right? the individual. Right. If a catastrophe happens, but nobody is affected, right? Well, that, <laughs> you wouldn't, that's not suffering, right? So if a tree falls in the wood and nobody hears it, does it make a sound, etc. Okay. So the fact that I break my leg, and it is painful, and when I go to the bathroom, it hurts. But because... Uh, I was a professional water skier, and we had the big water ski show coming up, which I was going to be a central part of. There is a moral suffering. I get COVID, and I feel really bad, and I have a physical suffering. And my niece, who's my goddaughter, is getting married this weekend, and I can't go. Right? It's an indicative of a, the duality of humanity, right? of the physical and the spiritual. Does that make sense? So it's talking about how there are these things rooted deep within us. And, of course, there are all kinds of sufferings that are not physical. Right? Right? Heartbreak is one of the famous ones, right? You ever seen a, the 16-year-old boy who is infatuated with this girl, and she ghosts, you know that phrase, ghosting, have you heard that one, all right? She won't talk to him anymore. He suffers. Well, not the greatest suffering in the world, right? We all know that, right? He suffers. His heart is broken, right? And so on and so forth. Obviously, I'm using fairly low-level examples here. Anyone who has meditated on the reality of suffering knows it gets much Deeper than this, right? Lies, betrayal, manipulation, right? So on and so forth. Coercion, right? Physical coercion is brutal if you've ever seen it, right? Beating someone up to get what you want is brutal. The psychological manipulation, the psychological coercion can in many instances be just as, or on occasion, more damaging to a person. Again, we don't need to get into all the specifics, but that can be the case.
case. So it's pointing to a duality that has to be meditated upon. Now, the Holy Father in this does in fact talk about the scriptural meditations on these things, but it's interesting how he does it. He's going to give some more specific scriptural meditations in the chapters forthcoming, but he goes on this sort of litany of the way that the scriptures realize the world of suffering, right? So we're starting with suffering is a reality that we can recognize. It appears subjective into the human person, yet has this objective, right? We all name suffering as this thing out there. And it can be both physical and moral. So we have to examine something deeply about it. But it's about the human person. So does the scripture say anything about this? It says, let us quote from the books of the Old Testament a few examples of the situations which bear the signs of suffering and above all moral suffering. The danger of death, the death of one's own children, especially the death of an only child. Then to the lack of children, nostalgia for homeland, persecution and hostility of the environment in which you live, mockery and the scorn of the one who suffers, loneliness and abandonment, remorse of conscience, right? Feeling bad for something you've done. Mm -hmm. The difficulty understanding why the wicked prosper and the just suffer. The unfaithfulness and the ingratitude of friends and neighbors. The misfortune of one's own nation. Then here's the quotation. In the treating of the human person as a psychological and physical whole. All right? That's important. The Christian revelation says you are a psychological and physical whole. Unity, oneness, right? The Old Testament often links moral sufferings with the pain of specific parts of the body, the bones, the kidney, the liver, the heart. In fact, one cannot deny that the moral sufferings have a physical or somatic element, and they are often reflected in the state of the entire organism. So he's now meditating on the way the scriptures talk about it, all right? A lot of time, if you have a moral suffering, you feel it, quote, in your guts, right? It hurts right here, right? It hurts right here. Now, you don't actually have a, it's a, it's a fascinating thing, right? As we've come to understand, brain science gets more and more fascinating. You're having a psycho-spiritual psycho reaction to something, right? You've been betrayed, lied to, treated unjustly. So on and so forth, right? And you, you know, we say, right? Oh man, I got kicked right in the gut with that one. Well, you didn't actually get physically kicked in the guts, right? It creates a, so it shows there's an integrity. And the reason he brings this up is he's starting to bring this up now to say, okay, this is where we have to look at the way the New Testament looks at it. He makes a specific point here. He said, it can be said that people suffer when they experience any kind of evil. In the vocabulary of the Old Testament, suffering and evil are identified with each other. In the Old Testament, suffering and evil are identified with each other. He's trying to be clever here. You realize even in non-biblical scenarios, suffering and evil are connected one to the other. Thus, the Old Testament vocabulary did not have a specific word to indicate suffering. It's very interesting. Old Testament Hebrew does not have a specific word for suffering. It always refers to evil, right? Describing an evil action and the implication is you suffer from it. But in the Old Testament, you experience an evil action, you suffer. You experience an evil situation, you suffer. Does that make sense? But they don't have that word itself. Only the Greek language, and together with it, the New Testament, use the verb pasco. I am affected by. I suffer. So the Greek word pasco. I suffer. And thanks to this verb, suffering is no longer directly identified with objective evil, but expresses a situation in which man experiences evil 
and in doing so becomes the subject of suffering. Suffering has indeed both a subjective and passive character that even when a person brings suffering on himself, when they are the cause of it, this suffering remains something passive in the metaphysical sense. Right? Let's get into that a little bit. Okay. So pasco is this Greek word that now separates something evil with my experience of it. I'm the one who suffers because of it. And so it starts to demonstrate that A, suffering is, again, subjective. If a tornado smashes up uh, Lawrence, Kansas, I I mean, I don't suffer from it, right? If my house was there, then I do, all right? And again, we realize there's a passive part of this. I was just, whatever, at Father Eric's lecture. I was just, you had, having dinner. I was going to bed early and this thing happened. Right? That's what I mean by I didn't actively generate the tornado to cause. I didn't actively destroy someone's house. Right? But he's even making the case that, this is so fascinating, that even if you bring that suffering upon yourself, Think of any self-destructive habit. I mean, highlight ones, right? Addiction. All the self-destructive addiction, that can be the case, right? I choose to lie. And then it's it, right? He's saying even that has a certain passive quality, all right? Most people who fall into addictive patterns don't say, I choose to drink to harm myself. I mean, some get into that dark psychological state, but the vast majority is... In fact, most narcotic addictions, people perceive they're trying to do what? Escape suffering. So even though they're taking the action that is harming them, there's a certain passive quality, right? Because they don't really intend to cause themselves that suffering. Now, he's building to a point with all of this, right? Thus, the reality of suffering prompts the question about the essence of evil, namely, what is evil, right? We come to the heart of the matter when we observe the world of suffering. So again, to reset, we observe the world and there is suffering, right? I don't, do I need to prove that point to anyone, right? We see the world, there is suffering. We see that it's physical and that it's moral, We see that it's experienced fundamentally within an individual person and in yet something we can all together look at, right? Subjective, objective. We understand that we have this word, I suffer, to identify what's happening within my own self, which is somewhat distinct from this thing that is causing me to suffer, even if I did it to myself. And it seems to be related to evil, right? He's stealing the biblical, right? It seems to be related to evil. So then the question becomes, well, what is evil? I don't know how much you've thought about that, right? Have you spent any time in your life examining? When I say the world evil, what does that mean? Right? I'm not asking you to tell me. I'm just saying we realize when he prompts that question, oh, that's a good question. Have I spent very much time? When I say that's evil, I sure feel like I know what I mean. But if someone asked me to describe it, what I mean, could I? And if I, if I had to write down a paragraph, what do you mean when you say something is evil? What is evil? Right. Is evil a bad man? Is evil something I don't like? Right. If that's the case, then in fact, flourless chocolate cake is evil. Why? Because I don't like it. That example right there says, well, that can't be true then, right? It can't be the world of preference. I like, I don't like. So what can it be? Oops, sorry, I missed my page. Okay. Christianity proclaims the essential good of existence and the good of that which exists, right? The goodness of creations means 
good things exist, right? That's what goodness means, right? It acknowledges the goodness of the creator and proclaims the good of creatures. You are good, cheeseburgers are good, the sunset is good, etc., right? We state that man suffers on account of evil, which is a certain lack, limitation, or distortion of good. We could say that man suffers because of a good in which he does not share, from which in a certain sense he is cut off, or of which he has deprived himself. He particularly suffers when he ought, in the normal order of things, to have a share in this good and does not have it. Thus, in the Christian view, the reality of suffering is explained through evil, which is always in some way in reference to the good. Right? I think that's very important for us to understand as we move forward into the why of suffering. When we examine suffering as it is, it is in reference to the good, namely a good that is not present. Right? What is one of the highest created goods? Life. Why is death so terrible? Because it is the absence of the, one of the highest created goods. Right? What is one of the highest metaphysical goods? Truth. Why is a lie so bad? Because it is the absent in whole or in part of the truth. All right? What are white lies? Things that are like half truth, three quarters. We, we don't need to, don't practice that, right? We've all been there, okay? All right. The little child who ate three cookies. Did you only have two cookies like I said? Yes. All right. What is the problem there? It's the absence of the true, which then there are other goods. Trust. Well, because I absented the truth, which is evil, now when it is discovered, when the truth is discovered and I discover its lack, now there is a lack of trust because there was the lack of trust, which is deceit, so on and so forth. Hopefully with physical health, that's obvious, right? I don't mean, right, what... What is the evil in blindness? I ought to be able to see, but cannot. What is the evil in cancer? My cell, cellular structure should be to the health and integrity of body, not to its decimation. Okay, so on and, and so forth. We could, I mean, if you want to do particular applications, but I think that's something that becomes very important, and that's where I want to end this, probably because we're coming on to time, and that's also where um, he finishes. Right? John Paul goes on after that to talk about we have all these manners of suffering, physical pain, emotional pain, natural disasters, famines, wars, right? We can talk this whole context. But that whole context, as we examine the world of suffering, and again, I think this is essentially important when we are in conversation with people who are non-believers, because it's not just a religious truth. I think it is an objective, metaphysical philosophical truth. Evil is fundamentally in reference to the good, namely a good that's not there. Does that make sense? Right? It's a good that should be there, but isn't. Now, the reason why it's not there could be bajillions. Okay? You know, uh, you feel afraid of someone because they come at you with violence, right? So now the evil is you have the integrity. If I punch you and you don't feel any physical experience of that, then there's really no evil, right? So a little kid beats on you, all right? It's not doing you any physical harm. The evil that is there is not the physical harm they're doing because your bodily integrity, which should be, is not being destroyed. Does that make sense? All right. The evil that is being, again, little children are probably beyond the age of reason, so it doesn't really apply, all right? They probably need some Montessori toy to make them feel better about everything. You're welcome, Melissa. Anyways, right? mm -hmm. the, I just saw this. I was just a nice, 
I was having a nice day getting my double butter cheeseburger from Culver's and right there at the intersection, honking, and they, two guys get out of the car and start yelling and screaming at each other. Right. Okay. Now, they, hotheads got over it. It seemed like their girls were, wives were yelling at them inside to stop acting like idiots, all right? Now, we don't want to get too wonkish about this, all right, because they didn't actually assault each other. Do I have to explain physical integrity as a good? We all, like most people agree, hey, your physical integrity is a good, right? Yes, right, right? Therefore, one of the reasons why me assaulting you is evil is because you have a right to physical integrity, well, we would say also you have a right to an emotional integrity. Certainly charity demands it. Certainly possessing an emotional integrity is a good, right? To be at peace. Are you very much at peace when someone is screaming at you about the various assertions about the nature of your mother and so on and so forth? All right. That's the nature of the evil, right? Does that make sense? All right. I am assaulting you with anger. So again, but, but that should not be. Right? I might not, in the traffic lane, be duty-bound to make you perfectly happy as such. Right? But you get into the whole wide array of it. Why is there traffic law? Why did engineers build roads a certain way? Why do the streetlights time the way they are? Not to torment you, honestly, it's not, all right? It's a rightly ordered society that we attend to this communal action that's ordered towards the good. When someone runs the red light, they are absenting the good that should be there. That sign value creates an icon of reality that you are meant to assent to and incarnate in your own body, right? This is in a heart, the, I'm going to go over too much, not too much, right? This is the heart of, this is why the word made flesh and dwelt among us is not just a religious claim. It's a deep philosophical metaphysical claim that the word, right, dwelt among us. That the utterance of truth, the word, and dwelt among us, incarnating it through your actions, is essential to all human reality. That if you just do things for no reason, you're a robot, right? Possibly a slave. That you do something because you hold a truth to it. And the evil that you and I do is largely predicated on either lies or not embodying the truth. Does that make sense? Now, that has a cosmic reality, which gets into the wise, right? We recognize that this has a cosmic reality, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us is a cosmic reality, that nature itself can fault, if you will. Existence can lack the good that is supposed to be there. Right? If a meteor falls out of the sky and, you know crushes your grandma and grandpa on the gazebo, right? That's because there is a disordering in the cosmos, right? You've heard these things, right? The, they flush the toilets in the airlines and it flees in the brock on the ice and falls down on the sky and kills somebody's dog or whatever, right? Which I think is a little hilarious because there's disorder in me, right? It's not hilarious, right? There's a wrong ordering that went to these kinds of things. We'll get to tornadoes and so wars, obviously. Okay, I'm going on and on. Okay, just to be clear. It's to start with, we see there is suffering in the world, right? No one disputes that. We understand that suffering is within the person, but also without the person. And demands to be meditated on and asked about. That suffering in the, right, Greek understanding of Pascal, right? Just to decide where that's where we get Pascal mystery. Pascal, I suffer. Gives us so that we can understand our own personal experience and someone else's personal experience. While also understanding that it is also outside of themselves. And that meditation leads us to really understand that what suffering is ultimately related to the good. Fundamentally, a good that should be that is and is not there. Okay? Great. Questions?
brought up several ways of suffering. I remember reading the mystics that a lot of these people suffered greatly, but they suffered for, it wasn't transferable for the salvation of souls. Others that were, am I misunderstanding? You're not misunderstanding, but I don't, that will, we'll get to that. All right, that is, that's the third, that is the third chapter, right. We are meant to see, and I hope I will give you, John Paul does a very beautiful thing. In kind of a weird, happy way, if any of you know the public personality, Jordan Peterson, he does a really profound meditation on the passion of the Christ. He doesn't know that he's stealing it wholesale from John Paul II because he hasn't read it. All right, but he is, right? He's sort of Jungian philosophy, and, but I mean, so but we'll get to that. John Paul is setting up, I think he's being very brilliant in why he's using, look, the Greeks have this word pasco that the Hebrews don't have. The Hebrews have a limited understanding of suffering because they can only relate it to evil, 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 evil. Pasco now relates it to the person and helps me to see that it's not just evil, evil, evil. What it really is is a lack of a good that should be there. Therefore, I have the ability in Christ, and we'll talk about how that's possible, to bring the good that should be there. By accepting, I can, in the cross of Christ, accept the lack of what should be there so as to highlight the good. Does that make sense? But we'll get to that in specific later. So when you get to that, that will be looking at suffering as a grace? Yes. Okay. Suffering as a grace. Suffering, really, suffering as an essential existential reality. That the cross of Christ will teach us that the only real way to live is to, quote, take up your cross and follow after me. That there is the malicious malignance of existence. People do evil to me. The world does evil to me. And the worst of it is, I do evil to myself. And I must face it. I must take up my cross and the cross I'm getting I'm going to don't want to spoilers right so a grace a metaphysical reality a philosophical idea a essential archetype all of those things so even in the old testament though the suffering equals evil when god takes action against the Israelites because of their lack of faith. Yeah. Is that really considered evil, or is it a chastisement to put them on the right path? Well, I mean, what is it? Yeah, God is depriving them. Now, you get into a... how Because how do good and evil relate to God, right? That's a... And again, that'll be dealt in one of these chapters as well. So I'm not trying to scare. I'm just saying, we'll get there. But what we were saying is, when is it... Right to deprive a person or a group of a good that should be there. Such things might exist, right? You see this on a small level when you do what? Put your children in time out. No, you can't have dessert. You don't have to put them in exile. I mean, time out and 40 years of exile are not one-to-ones, but I mean, essentially, right? You exile your child. You deprive them of a liberty that should be there justly because of what they have done. So when you have the suffering that other people do to you, yeah. and then there's, a, then there's a suffering that you do to yourself. Yeah. And then there's just, you know, man, the truck passed me on the road and kicked up the stone and cracked my windshield and cost me 500 bucks, right? All that. But is that suffering all the same? I mean, is it like the no, manifestly not. Anyone who has done it will tell you that, like, I think, you know, I... Comparing, he'll get into this also. Peering into the depths of suffering is a dangerous game. He talks about how you don't want to peer too deep lest you fall in, into despair. And measuring sufferings is not super helpful. Does that make sense? So are they all the same? No. How are they different? That's very subjective. Does that make sense? Um, the person who has, right, the, what's a good, the daredevil who gets a thrill from doing things that threaten physical danger has broken this, that, and the other bone, 
time. Broke my hand, my gosh, you know, right, Carrie, I'm stealing, I'm ready to, I've heard, oh, you know, this happened. <laughs> it's no big deal, right? The person who has never done that and whose livelihood is related to the use of their hand breaks their hand, experiencing physical pain they've never experienced before that directly affects their livelihood. The same thing happened to two different people. The effect of the evil is quite different. Does that make sense? And then you could go down the line with various things. Right. The evil there was just implied an evil thing happens to you, it's bad. Right. You suffer. They're the same. But when they were under the rule of the Egyptians under slavery, and slavery under the Egyptians, it was easy to point the finger at the Egyptians and say evil. Mm-hmm. When they were wandering the They're desert, doing that to us. Yeah. When they were wandering the desert suffering, how did they point the finger at who Well, they did it to themselves, right? Because they create the golden calf and they fornicate and all this. Yeah, but they were We're out here in the desert. The we have all this wicked manna, right? We're tired. We wish we were slaves. They're rebelling against God. God had a bad plan. He brought us out here in this hellhole. All right? And God says, here, have snakes bite you and die, and then see how much you can... Oh, we stop that. I'm being cartoonish about it, right? I'm saying, you, right? There is this, and we'll get into this. There is a such thing... As health, no pain, no gain, right? No guts, no glory, right? So there is a curative element to suffering. Salvific. Yes, salvific element to suffering. But a person has to conceptualize that. Does your six-year-old think that you are doing you know, out for the good of their soul when you paddle them on the bottom and put them in timeout? Answer, No. They do not perceive it as such. So that's where it requires a certain psychological integrity, a certain philosophical and theological understanding to get to that point that you are talking about. There is healthy suffering. There is such a thing, yes. The, The overweight person who is in physical danger and now must diet severely experiences suffering, pains of hunger, and so forth, which are good for them, etc. And we go on and on. So in the example that Lisa said about the 40 years, would they have connected their suffering to the evil that they themselves brought on upon themselves? They eventually did. Not right out of the gate. They usually had to have, Moses had to come and tell them this. Quite regularly, yes. Just think of any time something as bad has happened to you and you've had even the thought, why me? That's how. Right? This is a bad plan. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't say leave Egypt. I didn't do this. Plus now it's been 40 years. I, mean, I was born out here in this desert rock. Not my fault. This is not my fault. I didn't vote for him. <laughs> and on and on, right? Right? Yes. So the, right, again. This is, we'll, we'll, and we'll get into all of this. We'll get into scapegoating. That's a favorite one. A favorite way to rationalize suffering is scapegoating. It's his fault. Right? Not, it's not Pat's fault. Pat is not there. Right? There. All right. So again, the cross of Again, this is where we'll get into it. The cross of Christ is not just a neato religious event. It becomes the essential key for understanding reality as it is. Because again, we'll get into scapegoating. That Again, that's a very... Right? You'll see this all over in human history. Something bad, right? Because you can start to... Again, corporate suffering is such a fascinating thing, right? We're all suffering about this thing together, right? We can't be starving unless I'm starving, right? You know what I mean? Like, and you, and you, and you, right? So the only way for we to be starving is if all the individuals of us are starving, or a lot of them, or whatever the case may be, right? Sick, so on and so forth. And one of the easiest things to do, why are we starving, right? 
over there. Right? On a silly, <laughs> there's the old Saturday Night Live skit, right? Precious Moments with Jack Handy, right? They play Saturday Night. When it was raining, my grandma would say, it's raining because the angels are crying. And I asked, why are the angels crying? And she said, probably something you did. All right? <laughs> it's, com- it's comedy. But what's, right, what's the comedic part of it? Right? The comedic part is when we've ever felt guilty ourselves or whenever we've tried to transfer guilt onto someone else. Right? That's, where the, that's the root of the comedy. And suffering is very, very often one of those things that it's not my fault. It's not our fault. It's their fault. And so that's how the Israelites could get into that spot quite easily because, again, if you're a human being, you've probably been there at some point in your life. Hopefully over a small thing, right? But I didn't say the wrong soda. She heard it wrong. And I am not about to examine whether that's true or not. Way to go, Tina. And uh, I actually had a question about the very next sentence right after you ended. Oh, sure. Yes, very good. Mm -hmm. It says, in itself, human suffering constitutes, as it were, a specific world which exists together with man, which appears in him and passes, and sometimes does not pass, but which consolidates itself and becomes deeply rooted in him. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. And you're not affected by it anymore. But sometimes suffering becomes deeply rooted in us. Yep. So we stay in the bubble. Yes. So I was wondering, how does that look concretely in a person's life? Like, what does that manifest? Like, how do we see that in a person? So we would say, um, suffering becomes a specific world, right? And once again, if you've been in a period of suffering, you know, it's, it's as simple as something like, if you've ever been really sick, you almost can't remember what it was like to be well. Even if you had something like a cold. It's like, I can't remember what it was like to not. It's like you're in a whole different world, and the people who are not sure seem to be in a different planet than you. If you've ever talked to someone who's got chronic illness, you know they feel this very acutely. Or a particular um, disability, they feel it very acutely. Okay. So that is something. So we get to this world of suffering divided into many, very many subjects, exists, as it were, in dispersion. Every individual, through personal suffering, constitutes not only a small part of that world, but at the same time that world is present in him as a finite and unrepeatable entity. So your suffering is yours. And again, it can be momentary, like you mentioned. We have a fight, we make up. I'm sick for a while, I get better. I have um, an emotionally distant father. I become aware of it, engage in proper therapeutic conversation, and heal from it, and move on, right? That's, well, the longer, you're in the longer, right? Might have been for some decades, but, and so on, and so forth, right? I get cancer and go through that and heal from it. Those are passing through, right? Some, some people get cancer and die. Have, uh, you know, disability that never goes away. Has a deep emotional pain in their life that never gets approved. Is that answering your question? Well, yeah, so you're right. And again, we'll, he'll address this more specifically, in future, but you're right. Someone can, as it were, not simply embrace that world of suffering, but fall, fall into despair, a, a version of despair. 
Someone does an emotional, psychological evil to me, and the way I deal with it is by repeating it. Right? Right? We, right? Most alcoholics come from an alcoholic in their family, right? I observed this. It affected me. It's all I know. I repeat it. Not all, right? So that's where the suffering... Be, I did that, yes? Hard to explain. Essentially, I'm, I'm going to do my best to explain this because I really think it is a profound thing. Mm-hmm. In a game called Dark Souls, it's extraordinarily difficult. And some levels are more extraordinarily difficult than others. And when you finally get past the level, when you've basically been trying to, to beat the same boss for weeks, and you finally do it, and you feel relieved that your suffering is over, you then have a choice. You're given two items for every level. You can place on a white sign, and you can help other players get past the suffering. Because since you went through it alone, now you know how to do it. You can help somebody else through it wordlessly. You don't get any thanks. You do it simply because you want to help another person. Or you can place on a red sign. And every time somebody gets through the same point where they would most likely die or lose or fall off a cliff because it's hard, you make it even harder by going into their world, kicking them off the cliff, over there, and basically, why people do that because they think it's fun to just manage with players. And yes. It always makes me feel bad because, like, the game's already hard. It's already a math amount of suffering. Why are you doing this? Yeah, no, there, there, there is a profundity to that point. Existence is difficult, and there are monsters that people face, figuratively and literally, psychologically and Physically. And those who do face those monsters and overcome them, you're right, essentially have a choice. I can assist the person behind me or I can make it harder. Likewise, I guess the people who face those monsters and don't overcome them could also theoretically become harmful to others. So I, I get entirely what you're, what you're saying. And so there's a profundity there. If you are in the world of suffering and you are triumphing over it, doing it well, we would say, then you, you're right. It would, seem, it would seem very likely that you would be a light to other people. Uh, well, once again, we'll get to that in, you're getting into a why, and we'll get into that into the next one. The essential point of the flood is man conceived in his heart nothing but what was evil. That is the essential point. The good has departed the human heart, which is a fascinating meditation on the existence of. But that's the phrase is man conceives in his heart nothing but what is evil evil. So they say darkness isn't a thing, it's a lack of light, the absence of light. So right. You're saying that evil is the absence of good. Right. Evil really only, and I think that is metaphysically true, you only can know evil in reference to the good. Like if you, only, if you, if you know good, then you can know Right. Both. You don't have to know evil to know good, but you have to know good to know Evil. Now, what I would say is you can experience evil without knowing that it's evil. Right? Because the only way, and you can, ex- again, there is a natural reality to this, all right? There might be someone who is, right, doing something evil or something evil is being done to them. They don't know intellectually that it's evil. They just know that something's wrong. People in abusive situations, this is often the case. They don't have a category for it, especially if they're young, right? But it's so when they become aware, when they can intellectualize, right? when, the, when they have the word to intellectualize what the good is, 
then that's the way they can explain it. Fundamentally, the basic way for them to heal from it is to know the good. Right, you can't, you can't know what's wrong unless you know what's right. Well, again, you have to get into the, there is a, there's something deep in the mystery of human suffering when, what happens when there's suffering when you can't conceptualize it, right? When it's so great you can't conceptualize it or when you do you... Well, it, it could be one way or the other. What if you grow up in a, right? What if you grow up in Soviet Russia where everyone lies, right? The state lies to you, the teachers lie to you, you're... Everyone lies to you. Lying is just a normal, you don't, so you don't even really, you don't conceptualize it as lying, right? Well, what happened? Well, you get a very degraded society is what starts to happen because there is not, on the intellectual level, there is not a distinction between the truth and a lie. No one knows the difference. But everyone understands something's off here. Something's not working here. If you grew up in a world where people manifestly, regularly say things that you know aren't true, that you know they know aren't true, but they all do it, you might not know what a lie is intellectually, but you just know something's not right. Something's off. So it seems to me that the requirement for understanding good and evil would be you have to have the Holy Spirit in your heart to have the wisdom of God. If you don't have the wisdom of God, you wouldn't be able to... To know good and evil as, like, at its deepest, yes, you have to have it. But, like, uh, you don't have to be a Christian to know good from evil. You, might, you need revelation to know the complete good. You don't have to be a Christian to know that I shouldn't beat my little brother to death. You don't even have to be a Christian to know you shouldn't lie. Right? You, so on and so forth. Yes, there is natural law. Pardon? Of the knowledge of good and evil. And that was a bad thing. Right, so again, the, this is because eating from the knowledge of good and evil is the icon of I take truth, I don't receive truth. Truth is taking something that I take for my own possession, not rather that I receive. That's the fundamental difference, right? Because if you take truth, you can start to make truth. Whereas if you receive, because the truth is something ultimately you can only receive and discover and obey. You can't make it yourself, right? That's the most dangerous of all people are people who think they can create truth. Woe to him, uh, most of all, who calls good evil and evil good. Right? That's the, essentially, you're trying to rewrite truth. And that's what taking, to, taking from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the icon of the, in a sense, the gravest of all things. See, something is good, right? Flourless chocolate cake is evil because I say so. And because I am the king, no one may have it. You know what else is evil? All the colored Mountain Dews. Yes. So. All the colored Mountain Dews. <laughs> <laughs> right. But you see, right, we have, ex- we have experiences of human institutions that have tried to do this, right? They usually build their realities on heaps of bodies, ordinarily. Most, the ruination of most people is when they decide they become either a truth unto their own selves or alternately, more fashionable in our own day is just who cares. I can get colored Mountain Dew and flowers chocolate cake, so who cares what's true? I'm sorry about the flowers chocolate cake. That was just my favorite whipping post, right? But you get what I'm saying. Okay. We're coming up on the, any other question, right? And again, please, if you have specifics, that is, we move on and on to the why and the how to understand the meaning of these things in future endeavors. Okay, anything else before we close? Do you you have copies of that somewhere that we can? No, but it's you can easily. It's available for free on the interweb.
Where'd you get your copy, Tina? Oh, I got this for class in the seminary. Pardon?